What is up, everybody? I just want to start by saying thank you to all of my listeners, both the longtime listeners, of course, and the newer listeners who have come aboard more recently. Uh, really appreciate you guys taking time out of your days to listen and sharing these episodes with friends and family. This word of mouth marketing is by far and away the number one reason that this podcast has the reach that it does. We've continued to grow quite a bit recently. We're reaching all ends of this earth, and it's because of you, the audience, sharing this with friends and family. So from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you. I uh, want to also point you to our social media pages. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. You could see tips, uh, self-improvement, self-help, personal development tips and philosophies, and of course, video updates and other things going on with the podcast. So you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And finally... If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, I ask that you take literally 20, 30 seconds out of your day right now and go to the podcast page, The Optimal Life with Nate Haber, and give us a rating. It, you don't even need to leave a review. If you leave a review, great. The constructive criticism, the positive feedback, we welcome everything. But if you could give us the rating and if you find great value in this, I'd ask for the five stars. That will continue to allow us to reach as well. And now... Please enjoy the show. The Optimal Life. Dr. Sharfstein, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So you've got a uh, very well-established background. You've done some really incredible things. Um, I'd like you, the audience to understand exactly who, you, where you come from, uh, medical school. I've seen Harvard Medical School, your current position. Um at Johns Hopkins. So kind of just give us a, a high level overview of some of your credentials, if you would. Well, that's nice of you to say. Um, we'll, we'll see um, what you think as you learn more. But I, I did graduate from Harvard Medical School and I did a residency in pediatrics. I'm a pediatrician. Um, I studied a little bit more at Boston University um, in a general pediatric fellowship where I worked at the State Health Department in Massachusetts and the World Health Organization. And after I finished that, I went to work on Capitol Hill uh, for Congressman Henry Waxman, who's really a giant in the field of health policy. I worked for him for five years, saw patients occasionally in the nights and weekends in D.C. and Baltimore. And um, after that, I um, started a, a run of a couple positions in public health. I worked as the health commissioner in Baltimore City for two mayors. Um, I worked... I'm in the Obama administration as the acting commissioner and principal de deputy at the Food and Drug Administration. And I know we'll be talking about that a little bit more. And then I became the health secretary for the state of Maryland for Governor O'Malley's second term. Um, and from there, I came to the School of Public Health, where I teach in health policy and management, do different kinds of projects, get to hang out with students, which is super fun. I just had a student here who's totally inspiring um, in my office just before we started talking. Interesting. Uh, yeah, the the President Obama appointed you in two thousand nine to Deputy Commissioner of FD of the FDA. Correct. Correct. Okay. What was that like for you? I mean, what does that mean? First of all, Deputy Commissioner. What was your roles and responsibilities, and what was the feeling like getting appointed by the President of the United States? Um, you know, it was very exciting. They said that initially they were going to do a White House event, and we realized we had like no clothes to wear to a White House event, and we went running to the store and. 
got our kids nice outfits and everything. And then they called and said that they were going to do a video announcement. So <laughs> that's how it, that's how it all went down. But um, it was very exciting. Um, I had worked um, on the transition for President Obama. I had been uh, leading the FDA part of the transition, which was meeting a lot of constituents of the agency and people at the agency and writing up a memo about what could be done at FDA. And our theme there was that the FDA is a public health agency. It has had a really important history protecting the American people. People should think of the FDA as a public health agency first and maybe as a regulatory agency second. And that it had lost its way a little bit, we thought, in the Bush administration. And that President Obama had some opportunities to really um, support FDA in advancing the health of people in the United States. And and I guess that that memo um, resonated with them. And so they asked me to work as the principal deputy commissioner to Dr. Hamburg. And I worked as the acting commissioner until she was confirmed. You know, Dr. Hamburg was also a public health commissioner. I came as the public health commissioner of Baltimore. She had previously been the public health commissioner of New York City. What are the roles of the deputy commissioner of the FDA? What was your prime responsibilities? Um, you know, I worked in a lot of different areas. We didn't really divide up the agency so much. It were just, you know, different different topics. The, the agency is very busy. You know, it regulates consumer products, I think over a trillion dollars a year, um, all medical products. Uh, we had legislation passed when we were there for tobacco products, regulates cosmetics, most foods, you know, so there's always something going on. So um, I worked on a couple of things that were kind of structural for the agency. For example, I led the transparency task force to try to make FDA more transparent. I led something called FDA track, which was um, a new performance management system that cut across the agency. So I worked on some like infrastructure projects at FDA, but then I also got involved in all kinds of different specific issues, you know, to give an example there was like an outbreak of an infectious disease in cheese. Okay. And the cheese was like from a traveling exhibit of cheeses. Have you ever been to a traveling exhibit of cheeses? Like you go into the store and they're like, want to try this cheese? Want to try this cheese? And they have little blocks of cheese and like toothpicks in them. Right. And so there were a whole bunch of cheeses that were in this traveling exhibit. And some people were getting really sick and winding up in the hospital and, you know, at risk of dying from E. coli, mm. uh, 15787. And so the question is, you know, what do you do? You know, we obviously stopped the traveling cheese roadshow, right? But we know one of those cheeses is still being, you know, is, which is responsible, is still being sold. Do you say all 11 cheeses, I don't remember how many it is, have to be recalled? Do you wait for the test results? How long do you wait? How much assurance do you need before you take action? It, you know, questions like that um, I would get involved in and try to help bridge the gap, say, with CDC that's investigating the outbreak, the FDA that has the regulatory authority. We'd make sure that all the information was in the same place. Like, for example, one of the cheeses was not pasteurized. Well, that's a little bit of a warning sign right there. And then when you look at the inspection, it turns out they're like dogs running around the factory. Mm. So you've got all, you know, a problem in the factory and it's not pasteurized. And it turned out there was that that cheese. And so we move really quickly on that, that mm. cheese. Um, but trying to figure out, you know, what the the right balance is between the public's interest and and the information. Yeah, that, that's what have. I was going to ask you. How do you determine? Because it's not one size fits all. You guys are reviewing a plethora of data, a plethora of cases, a plethora of drugs and new opportunities, foods, tobacco, as you mentioned. 
is there a standard test that you guys say yes versus no? Or is it kind of just a, a vote by committee kind of thing? It, there are a lot of processes and tests and expectations. There's a lot of data analysis that happens that feeds in to um, multiple types of FDA decisions. So there's certain decisions that are pretty routine and they've been, you know, there's a lot of uh, thought that goes into the structure of how evidence gets reviewed and presented. But then there are new challenges. There are unusual situations. And then you've got to apply the rules to different contexts. Like, you know, there's no FDA policy on traveling cheese roadshow. You know, so you've got to take your understanding, your approach to evolving outbreaks, and you've got to apply it to a different situation. And sometimes you don't know, um, you know, what to do. And and at the agency, what they'll do is, you know, you make the best decision you can, and then they convene an advisory committee. And we actually did convene an advisory committee. I think at the advisory committee, we, we asked a question about fruit salad, which is if you knew a fruit salad was causing illness and it had 11 fruits in it, would you try to recall all 11 fruits if you knew just one of them was getting people sick? And most people would say, no, you wouldn't recall all 11 fruits. Well, what if you narrowed it down to three? You know, and so like, you know, it just helps you think about, this, yeah. you know, it was going to take you a week to distinguish between the three. What do you do during that week? Do you tell people to hold on to their food during that week and not eat it? You know, so we get advice from the public and experts to try to help set up policies when new things come up. Mm. And then once you guys have a decision made, how does that decision become official record, official government record? Um, well, if it's a regulatory decision, it gets communicated to the regulated entity. You know, your drug is approved, your drug is not approved, your device is cleared, your device is not as cleared, it, it is not cleared, it gets entered on the, goes up on the website one way or another. Hopefully our, you know, transparency is good so people can see the reasoning for the decision on a particular issue. So it's an electronic submission, I guess, in simple terms. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't always. It used to right. be just crazy amounts of paper, but... Um, it's electronic and the decisions are communicated electronically for sure. If you think about, you know, the COVID vaccines, for example, you know, there was a lot of data. The FDA reviews that data very carefully, reanalyzes the data and presents a detailed analysis to an external advisory committee through a public meeting. And they talked about the data, they answered questions about it, and then the advisors voted and then the FDA made a decision and announced it. Were you happy with the way that the FDA handled COVID overall? When it came to let me let me specific let me ask that more specifically, were you happy with the way that they handled rolling out the vaccines as quickly as they did? I thought they did a terrific job in that. I actually wrote an article about that. I, I think that the FDA first of all had a pretty high standard, a very high standard for the kind of study to be done, much higher than other countries, um, higher than the United Kingdom, for example. More people more age ranges, a greater diversity of subjects. Um, and so, you know, the evidence that the FDA had at the time to make the decision was a lot of evidence and a lot more than other countries did. Some countries, you know, didn't even wait for clinical outcomes. They just said, oh, well, we see antibodies and that's good enough. And in those countries, people didn't know whether that vaccine worked and they had a huge problem with up uptake, even worse than we did. Whereas, you know, in the United States, we got very good data with clinical outcomes, um, and that data was shared publicly. It was discussed by external advisors. It was voted on uh, all before the FDA um, made a final decision. And so while it happened 
rapidly compared to other vaccines, it was really not through, um, you know, cutting corners, in, in my view. And I think FDA did a pretty good job explaining itself, which is why there was so much interest in the vaccine when it got when it got authorized. Yes, that there was definitely a lot of interest in it. But how do you know, how do you know uh, that the FDA and, and whoever's analyzing this type of stuff is making the right decision for the long term? Or or do you not truly know, if we're being completely candid, do you right. not truly know? Because there's not enough time for years to go by. Right. So, so totally reasonable to ask, you know, well, what are the 10-year consequences of the vaccine? Well, you can't know that if the study has been six months long, you know, um, or nine months long. You know, you just can't know for sure, 100%. Now, so what do you do? You know, you're not in a situation where the alternative is everybody just gets to wait and is fine, right? The alternative is you have a lethal infectious disease that's contagious that is killing people around the world, including the United States. So you have to make a judgment about the benefits and risks compared to the alternative, which is facing the virus without a vaccine. And you're informed by that. It's not you know, just the like, well, we don't know anything about what's going to happen 10 years from now, right? We know the whole science of vaccines. We have evidence from all these other vaccines that have been studied for years and years and years. We know how the immune system works. We know how the immune system responds to vaccines. And so um, you have people with unbelievable expertise who have created policies and approaches to vaccines based on a lot of scientific evidence, and they are using their judgment to guide what an appropriate regulatory process is. And that's where they said, for example, and there was a big fight about this with the White House under President Trump at the time, they said it's really important to have 60 days of safety data because the Trump administration was saying, get this thing done before the election, You know, don't wait for all the safety data. And people said, well, why 60 days? Why not 10 years? Like, was that just completely arbitrary? And what they said was, look, we know from all these other vaccines that we're going to see the kinds of problems that vaccines can cause in the first 60 days. If we don't see it in the first 60 days, then there could be some very rare things that we uncover. It doesn't mean you're going to figure out everything in the first 60 days, but for the purpose of figuring out the benefits and risks against a raging pandemic, you know, the 60 days is the, is, is going to tell us whether there's a real problem um, with right. the It's going to tell you like uh, right off the rip if it, if you shouldn't do it, right? Because you're going to, if so, you're giving someone a vaccine or an animal you're testing, however you guys do it, and the animal drops dead from the vaccine, you're going to know this is going to be a problem. Right. And there are some delayed reactions that might happen at, you know, two weeks, a month, six weeks that are, you know, have been seen with other vaccines. So let's get two months of data so that we're, we're past that. And at that point, while there may be occasional, you know, side effects, everything has side effects, when you think about the, the decision, the judgment of like, is this safe and effective enough for the population in a um, pandemic, you know, it clearly passed that, uh, that test. And that's why, you know, so many people got vaccinated virtually every, you know, vast majority of doctors got vaccinated, people who realized that, you know, the key question in public health is compared to what, you know? And so compared to facing the COVID virus unvaccinated, the vaccine um, was not a close call, in my view. Well, what do you say then to, to the Dr. Peter McCullough's and Robert Malone's and these guys who say that the vaccines really didn't do a whole lot of anything besides potentially 
cause uh, myocarditis, the heart inflammation. You see people, cardiac issues um, appear to be higher than they were. Uh, there's some strange instances. Now, again, this is just the other side talking. So what do you say to those folks that say, you know, the vaccine, not only was it really not, no more effective than getting the actual disease itself, but it may have accelerated some of these other heart issues, for example. So, you know, overall, the vaccine um, is incredibly effective at reducing severe consequences in death. And there are lots of ways to show that. You can see that in clinical trials. You can see that in the countries that vaccinated everyone before they all got COVID. And the death rates are just so much lower than the people who got COVID before they got vaccinated, you know? And it's because the uh, getting COVID is so much more dangerous than, than getting the vaccine. Now, that doesn't mean the vaccine, like I said before, um, is perfect. There's no perfect pharmaceutical. You're going to have side effects. Those side effects, you know, have to be studied and you have to learn about them over time. And um, there uh, absolutely is an association, particularly in young men, with uh, some uh, myocarditis, with the particularly the mRNA vaccines, and that association is less than getting COVID. So if somebody who's a young man gets COVID, they could well get inflammation of the heart, and they're more likely to get it, is my understanding of the data, than just getting it from the vaccine. And so when you look at, like, again, that key question of compared to what, you know, um, sure. then the... What were uh, some of those countries, Dr. Sharfstein, uh, some of the countries that you mentioned that did have the lower fatality rates because they did the vaccine right away? Well, you know, if you look at like New Zealand and Australia, for example, New Zealand and Australia kept COVID out almost completely until they had vaccines, right? They shut down their borders um, and, you know, the virus wasn't spreading, just wasn't around. Then they vaccinated everybody when the vaccines became available and then they opened their borders. And of course, people did get COVID because... Vaccines don't stop transmission entirely, but they um, were much less likely to get very sick from COVID. And, you know, that's just one part of the evidence. You know, there's so much evidence in countries like the United States that the people who were vaccinated had a much lower fatality rate. You know, I mean, th this is why, um, you know, I spent my volunteer time vaccinating people, why, you know, um, so many uh Older adults who were afraid of of COVID um, got vaccinated and and were then able to go about doing things in their lives, knowing that the risk of dying is so much lower. And the evidence for that, I think, is overwhelming. Well, you you're an ardent vaccine supporter in general. Is that a fair statement? Well, you know what I would say is I support science. I support using the best available evidence. Um, there are vaccines. It, in history that have caused problems and have been taken off the market. You know, I believe there should be a, you know, strong vaccine safety system to identify it. But at the end of the day, the decision should be based on good information and science. And when you, you do that, you're going to be helping a lot of people. And there are vaccines that have um, just stopped so much death and suffering, it's almost impossible to contemplate. I mean, like the smallpox vaccine has saved, I think, by most accounts, tens or hundreds of millions of lives in the you know 20th century alone. And now that disease is eradicated. You know, the measles vaccine prevents people not only from getting measles and the risk of severe complications, but these just horrible 
complications, albeit rare, but they can happen where you get a horrible brain disease like three years after you had measles. You know, and so yeah. I was the one when my when the pneumococcal vaccine came out, pneumococcal um, meningitis, pretty common, you know, among as meningitis for, for small kids. And I'd seen as a pediatric resident kids dying of pneumococcal meningitis. And then a vaccine came out and it got approved, but hadn't yet been recommended. Now it's taken, you know, is recommended for all kids. But it was in that interim period. And I saw the initial trial results and I was taking care of patients who were really sick. I went out and bought it for my son. Mm. You know, I paid several hundred dollars, brought it over to the pediatric office and they gave it to him. And I was just like, you know, I, if there's evidence, if that's what the science says, then I absolutely am going to be supportive. I had a gentleman on my podcast last year who, whose son is now, I think, 25 years old, plus or minus. He has two sons. They were twins. Uh, when they were one years old, so 20-some-odd years ago, he took them both to get the MMR vaccine. Mm-hmm. And one of them was completely fine. And within a day or two of getting that vaccine, the other child's life changed forever. He became disabled. He became uh, autistic and, and completely completely nonverbal, the whole thing, like to the other far end of the spectrum. And they saw the, 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 the fits, the bouts of rage, the kid couldn't control himself. Um, so are those, what, how do you, what do you say to this? If you had a chance to talk to him, what, I mean, what would you say to that? Well, first of all, as a pediatrician, it's just hearing that story. It's just uh, heartbreaking to see, you know, a child suffer, you know, and, and all that. So it, it is, um, I think it's really important to feel empathy for parents whose kids have experienced all kinds of different things. You know, when issues come up about vaccines, they have to be studied really carefully. And the issue of the MMR vaccine and autism has been studied very carefully. There are a lot of studies that are, you know, uh, people brought together um, by the uh, Institute of Medicine in the United States with no conflicts of interest of any kind, looking at the data and concluding that there is no evidence um, linking the vaccine to autism. Now, when you give vaccines to every, you know, child in the country at a certain age, and there are other things that happen at that age, there are going to be times when kids get a vaccine and something else happens, but that does not necessarily mean that they're related to each other. And um, I don't think that the MMR vaccine is related to autism. I think the science does not support that. But that doesn't, you know, mean that this family doesn't need support, that there should be you know, a lot of attention to understanding the causes of autism and and really providing treatment and support for, for people who um, are affected. When I uh, worked on Capitol Hill, you know, there were disputes at that time, this was 20 years ago, about vaccines and autism. I think the question has been settled for the MMR vaccine, but it was a little bit more active back then. Um, so before the key paper on that was retracted um, and... Uh, all that. But, you know, in that time, we found common cause, even with the members of Congress who were concerned about vaccination, to work together to improve care for kids with autism. So I I think that, you know, it's important to really understand the difficult um, condition that that can be, the needs of parents, and should be working together to, to help find ways to prevent it and to help treat and support families with autism. It doesn't necessarily mean that something that happened coincidentally or around the same time necessarily was the cause. Right. Well, okay. So that's fair, but you're in agreement. Again, it comes back to the balancing test. You've talked about this since we started talking. 
you're in mm. agreement though that not i mean there are vaccine injuries that can occur from a vaccine is that a fair statement uh, absolutely okay so yeah and in fact you know congressman waxman who i work for was responsible for the vaccine injury compensation program which recognized yeah, that, the that there court. are yeah there are actual um potential um uh harms from vaccines and when they happen families should be compensated and, you know, that is, uh, it is, it's true. And again, if the alternative were no problems, then why would you accept any risk to kids? But the alternative is very serious. You know, the MMR prevents measles. Measles is a, can be a very serious disease. And where measles outbreaks have happened, kids have died, and you get this, you know, other horrible complications. And so when you think about the compared to what, that's, that's why we wind up doing this. That's why we recommend vaccination, even knowing there may be um, some kids who experience this, this problems. What was this uh, anybody but Sharfstein memo that was circulating? Talk talked about that a, a little bit, if you would. Well, I, I don't know that I can actually uh, verify that. That goes back to when I was being considered for a post at the FDA. And this was um, reported by the Washington, uh, this was Wall Street, Wall Street Journal. Journal. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. The Wall Street Journal said that um, the pharmaceutical industry was um, nervous about me. And that may have been because, uh, if true, first of all, I don't know. Again, I can't verify that, but you never you know, saw the memo. No, no, I did not see the memo. Um, you know, um, when I was the health commissioner of Baltimore, um, I uh, led an effort to try to take certain medications off the market. And um, those medications were the cough and cold medications used for little kids, which um, we'd found actually um, had led to the death of some kids in, in Baltimore um, because the mom and, or the dad and the grandparents were all giving doses and the margin of safety was pretty low. And also we found that those medicines had never been proven to work. So we wrote a petition with the pediatric leaders of different hospitals in Baltimore. We said, if, if they're not safe and effective, why should they be on the market? And we had realized that these had never gone through the formal FDA approval process in a way they'd been grandfathered in. And we asked FDA to take another look at it and they took another look at it and they all came off the market for up to age four uh, across the whole country. Um, and so I think, you know, we were pretty um, successful in that. I think that maybe that might have been one reason people were a little nervous about me. But I'll tell you, my record, if they'd understood it a little better in Baltimore, was a little bit more nuanced. There's a medication called buprenorphine that treats opioid use disorder, actually is associated with a two-thirds reduction or so in mortality. So people can live longer, not overdose. And um, I was very uh, outspoken in, in favor of using it more. We paid for everyone's training in the city of Baltimore. We dramatically expanded access and we saw a, a huge reduction in overdose deaths as we expanded access to buprenorphine. And, you know, we did that in that case because we thought the pharmaceutical was very helpful and I still mm -hmm. think it is, you know, so I, my, my view is like uh, public health is my North star, you know, if the evidence supports a, vaccine or the evidence supports a treatment, then I think people should get it. Right now, I, I care a lot, of, for example, about hepatitis C treatment, where people need to get it. On the other hand, if there's 
you know, the evidence when you look at it is shows that it's it's not worth it, that there's no evidence of effectiveness, that there is a safety harm. I've gone to great lengths in my career to make that case. And in some cases, gotten medicines taken from the market. Mm, interesting. Well, speaking of therapeutics and the pharmaceuticals real quick, what's your take then back on the COVID thing? What's your take about ivermectin? Um, you know, I my understanding, and I have not extensively reviewed the data myself, is that um, there were some uh, initial reports and hopes that ivermectin would be useful, but the more uh, significant studies, rigorous evidence has not borne that out. And for that reason, it's not, um, was never authorized by the Food and Drug Administration for COVID. Mm. So there were some hopes, but they did not pan out. Yeah, I will say from my own personal standpoint, I've, I have not been vaccinated and uh, I did get COVID several times. I got the, I forget the first strand that was really rough. Um, I got mine in like April of 21. Okay. And then, and then maybe six, nine, nine months later, I got the next one mm -hmm. and it was nasty. It was like a flu. I mean, I was knocked out on the couch for a few days. Um, but for me, I did do the, the ivermectins and it seemed to help. I'll tell you what else helped, to be honest with you. And again, mm -hmm. I'm not a doctor and I'm not promoting yeah. things. So don't don't take my advice. But I'm just telling okay. you, since I have your your attention. What else helped for me personally was Mucinex. Shockingly enough, I don't know what was in Mucinex, but it actually I got I got stuck in Florida when I first got it. Uh -huh. And I was there for a week, you know, multiple days in a hotel. I didn't even know what it was, but I took Mucinex and it was kind of easing my pain. Right. I don't know. Well, I think that there are there certainly are treatments that can help, you know, people feel a little bit better. Mucinex might be more of a symptomatic treatment, you know, for the, um, you know, mucus that you get, you know, from from um, from COVID. And, you know, um, it's it's interesting. COVID is not, obviously not everybody dies of COVID. Um, some people um, have a bad time with it. Some people not a bad time with it. It's hard to know in advance. Right. Um, some people um, wind up with with very difficult complications and um, that last for a long time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I I think um, when I, I certainly would have recommended that you be vaccinated or other people be vaccinated just on the grounds that like there if, if you uh, if you play the odds, um, odds are much better with the vaccine compared to facing the disease unvaccinated. But um you know, it's uh, everybody. Well, yeah, it's not a one size fits decision. all, right? It's not a one size fits all. I mean, if you're a healthy person, you have a better chance of fighting off the uh, the virus, any virus. It doesn't have to be COVID. If you're a healthier person, you have a better chance of fighting off any kind of illness than somebody that is not as healthy. And that's a very generic way of putting it, but somebody that smokes or that's overweight, that age obviously plays a factor because of immune systems. All those things do go into it. Correct, doctor? Um, I, I think that's true. It really does depend on the pathogen though, because, you know, there are some uh, diseases that interact in weird ways with the immune system. So for example, the, the Spanish flu um, really killed a lot of military recruits who are kind of young, healthy people. Um, and it's thought that perhaps there's strains of flu that could be particularly um, lethal for people with very strong immune systems compared to weaker immune systems, as it turns out, particularly if it's, you know, relates the pathogen, 
uh, genesis relates to the strength of your immune system. So it kind of depends a little bit on each individual. Right. Um, That's what makes medicine so fascinating. I think you're right. I would agree (laughs) with you there. There we can agree. We can. Well, you know, I'll I'll tell you again from personal experience, pneumonia. When I had pneumonia several years back, that was way worse than anything I experienced from COVID. That was just me. That was my experience. Pneumonia, it was a nasty, nasty week for me. Yeah. Well, um, there are a lot of people who get pneumonia from COVID. And it's just horrible for them at, at different ages. And you know, it's um, it, it's more than a million Americans died, you know, and and at all ages. Um, so it's it was a pretty horrible. It's a pretty horrible. Uh, oh, virus. it was a nasty, a nasty, nasty virus. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and, and really unfortunate. I, I did want to bring you on to get before we finish it off. I really want to hear. Uh, we we kind of got ta- sidetracked on that that COVID the whole time, but. Uh, one of the things that's happening, in fact, I think the Supreme Court is looking at it. They they delayed the decision till tomorrow, I believe. Um, is this uh, abortion drug? Um, what the name of the abortion drug um, is? How do you say it? Mifepristone. Mifepristone. Yeah. Mifepristone. Okay. Talk to us a little bit because that was uh, one of the things I saw uh, in your bio is that uh, there was a Texas, I believe, a federal court in Texas that is trying to basically strike the FDA's decision to say that this is a good, safe drug and, and the court's trying to make it illegal. Is that correct? Um, yes, the court is trying to make it illegal. This is a medicine that was approved in the year 2000. It's been used by millions of people um, to uh, terminate their pregnancies. It's a very strong safety record. It's supported by all the professional associations like the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And there's really no credible debate about its safety as a medicine. Um, And the judge, uh, for pretty clearly ideological reasons, um, is trying to invalidate its approval 23 years later. And what does that do for you when you see that? What are the what kind of potential risks does that set when it comes to setting precedent? What what do you see this? What could be the type of snowball effect that can come from this? So um, the concern is that we have a system that supports access to medications and vaccines based on evidence in this country, you know, and there's um, that was a lot about what we talked about about FDA before, you know, where the evidence gets analyzed, it gets presented publicly, advisors look at it, um, there are recommendations made, it goes on the market. If you have a judge who, you know, has an ideological opposition to abortion or something else and gets wakes up and says, you know, I just think the FDA shouldn't have done this, then it really throws that normal established system of uh, reviewing and approving medicines into chaos because there are a lot of other conditions. You know, there could be judge who wakes up and says, I don't know if I like these vaccines for COVID, you know, and suddenly they order those off the market or someone who says, I don't like antidepressants. You know, there, there are groups that don't like antidepressants. So let's, let's get rid of those. And um, it poses a threat, not just on the question of reproductive health, but on a lot of other conditions where there are people who could just show up with unscientific arguments or, you know, worries or ideology or influence competitors, for example, and, 
And suddenly you don't really have a system that supports access to safe and effective drugs and vaccines. You have anarchy. And that's dangerous. And that's why it's not just people like me who used to work at the Food and Drug Administration who are expressing alarm about this. There were um, a number of patient advocacy groups from the ALS Association to the multiple sclerosis groups to the muscular dystrophy saying, look, if you start messing around with the FDA's ability to, to look at the evidence and, and make good judgments based on the evidence, then that's going to make all of our uh, all of us um, a weaker. It's going to threaten care for all of these other conditions because we we depend on the FDA to do this. The FDA usually is invisible. It sits in the background. You know, people don't think about it too much. But if the court's going to say, you know, actually, everyone gets to second guess the FDA, we're not going to pay much attention to all their analyses, we're not going to care about their expertise, then that throws into play a lot more than just abortion. I mean, even on, on abortion alone, there are huge public health consequences from this decision. But beyond abortion, there are there are even more. So is mifepristone, is it used for other things besides aborting a child? Um, You know, I... I don't know if I would um, exactly use that language to describe how mifepristone is used, but I would say, um, yes, um, there it is certainly used for known miscarriages. It's also used for some other conditions under certain circumstances. So what I'm trying to understand is that are they are they outlawing the drug? Is it because the the only use that that if let's assume that abortion is becomes illegal, okay? In an assumption, this is the let's say this is Texas. And abortion mm-hmm. becomes illegal. Mm-hmm. And this drug has only one purpose, and that purpose is to assist in a woman allowing to abort her child. It's a it's a form of an abortion pill. I think it's a two-phase pill. You take this, and then you take something else. If this thing all, it has that sole purpose, then isn't the court really striking this down because it's uh, could on, the, the only thing it could do is help assist in a crime? Versus striking it down because they just don't like the medicine. Um, I I'm not so sure I'm I'm following because, you know, the use of mifepristone is legal in most you know many states in the country, um, but by a lot of people. And in the states that abortion is illegal, it's illegal to use mifepristone for abortion. Oh, it is. So, yeah, today. Okay. So it's really not weighing in on the state's ability to do something. It is weighing in on the, for the country, even mm-hmm. where the state is saying it's totally appropriate to use mifepristone. Um, it would it would invalidate that approval. So because it, it's it would, a federal it's a federal decision. Is that is that why? That's right. That's exactly okay. right. It's a federal court. So that's now as we're speaking being considered by the Supreme Court. But what's very interesting to me is just how many other advocates for other diseases are speaking out about this because of the precedent that this would yeah. set. Well, and, I agree and- with I agree with you. That's something else we can agree on is that I agree with that it sets a very dangerous precedent and it it really thwarts potential innovation. Why in the world is any group of people going to want to spend years of their lives, millions and gazillions of dollars trying to come up with a cure for MS, uh ALS, you mentioned some of these. Why are you going to do that if a federal court who really doesn't know anything about medicine can decide one day to wake up and just say, we want this off the market. I, I agree completely. Incredible stuff.
So where do you think this is going? I know that they moved the decision till tomorrow, the Supreme Court. If you had to give us your crystal ball, yeah. what do you say, Doc? I've got no crystal ball in this one. I have no idea. This is like, you know, uh, what my my late grandfather would have called a U um, a U S. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. An ulcer session. An ulcer session. <laughs> yeah, he would say this is a U.S. Yeah. Um, and so this is an ulcer session. For those of us who care about public health and the consequences here, not just in reproductive health, which are serious, but beyond, this is a big U.S. Understand. Hey, uh, where can people find you uh, online? I, I did see your Twitter. We'll link your Twitter. Is there anyone anywhere else online or a website that you'd like people to go if they want to learn more? Um. Probably the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health site. I have like a faculty page. It you know says a little bit more about me there. Great. Well, Dr. Sharfstein, uh, really appreciate the insight today and uh, continued success to you. Well, I really appreciate the chance to talk, even even when we don't agree on everything. I I like uh, having conversations with people, and uh, thanks for having me on.